week in grad school. I'm Kate. And I'm Dustin. And we are joined today with Julia Cubans, who is a PhD graduate student at the University of Minnesota in agronomy and plant genetics. Is that, did I say that correctly? Yeah, agronomy and plant genetics. Heavy on the agronomy, light on the plant genetics. Just a sprinkling of that? Yeah. Okay. Enough to be dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. Um, I know I was a recent guest on your podcast, which was really great and really fun. So we wanted to have you on and because we think that your your project is is really great. So could you tell us a little bit about about you and what you're up to? Sure. So as we just mentioned, I'm getting a degree in agronomy and plant genetics, and I also have a podcast and those things don't necessarily seem uh explicitly intertwined, but throughout my time in agronomy, which has been a number of years now, it's been actually a decade now that I've been working in agriculture. Agronomy is just a fancy word for saying I do agricultural research and help farmers farm better. But I started in agriculture by accident. As a recent high school graduate, I decided to work on a farm with my friend because I thought that was a great way to spend literally 24 hours a day, seven days a week together before we went to college. (laughs) Did it work? Uh, It worked. And we didn't, we still liked each other at the end. So that was good. Um, And then I really fell in love with agriculture there. And that kind of, I guess, fast forwarding to now. Well, fast forwarding, I got a degree in ecological agriculture. I always forget that in my in my undergrad what that name is, but ecological <laughs> agriculture at the University of Vermont. And then I worked for a bit and then I decided grad school and agriculture were was where my my heart laid, lies, still lies. <laughs> and um, that kind of brought me up to where I am now studying agronomy and plant genetics, and then adding, sprinkling this podcast that I'm doing into it, which is called Hooked on Science. Now, just a quick question. Uh, Do you miss Burlington? I love UVM. I do miss Burlington, especially I think this past year, I've been feeling a lot of nostalgia for the water and the mountains here in Minnesota. We do have a lot of lakes here, land of 10,000 lakes, but the topography leaves something to be desired for sure. Yeah. And it's a very I, different culture. <laughs> that's, I, uh, I mean, it's a quick uh, off topic bit, but Burlington is my favorite place uh, that I've lived. Um, I would just work there during the summer. So lip feels strong, but uh, I miss being on Lake Champlain. So I, Minnesota sounds lovely too. My brother lives in Minneapolis now. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, uh, they're both good places, but Burlington definitely has a little bit more of a quaint feel. And then, yeah, all of the outdoor amenities that uh, the Midwest doesn't necessarily have. You heard it here first, folks. Burlington is better, <laughs> according to Julia. <laughs> She's an expert. Yeah, so um, we'll start before we kind of get into like the details of your work and your podcast and all that good stuff. Um, we're going to start again with our rapidly aging and no longer new segment. What's new with you? So Dustin, first, what's new with you? 
I already forgot what was new with me. That's <laughs> that's how new new things are. I'm pretty sure there's some big news that's new. <laughs> I am going to Rochester Institute of Technology for my clinical pre-doctoral internship. So that means um, moving my family and selling my home and doing all those things very quickly. Uh, it is fun and exciting. Kate, <laughs> what is new with you? So the biggest thing for me is I found out I did not get the NSF GRFP. Ah, I'm mad about it. Um, but it also snowed here today. <laughs> oh my god! Um, it, it's been a little bit of a <laughs> bad news week. Uh, no, that was last week with the NSF. But um, yeah, so I found that news out, but I'm also like applying to other things. And so I'm really excited about that. And I also got a grapefruit scented candle, which is really nice. So those are the big things. Grapefruit scented? Yeah, there's a Trader Joe's here now. And there's like a nice, I like splurged and got myself a grapefruit scented candle. And it's like, it's pretty great. Okay. Yeah. Living large on that, that grad school stipend. Which leads me to my next question. Julia, what's new with you? Uh, well, it is not snowing here, thankfully. And I've been spending some time outside in the sunny weather. It's a little bit cold right now, but it's only like 40 degrees. But you know, over the weekend, it got up to 70. So that was, that was, I guess, new with the world. I got to go outside in shorts <laughs> and a t-shirt. So that was new with me. <laughs> I uh, had to go get a, I, I have to get weekly COVID testing and I, it was like kind of sunny outside and I didn't look at the temperature. And so I went outside in like a, in like a summer wrap dress and like, like 200 feet out from my house. I was like, oh no, but I decided not to go back because I'm lazy. And it was one of those moments where like, you know how there's always some people who like they're they've decided it's summer so they're like the legs are like the legs are out and mm -hmm. my legs are particularly pale so I felt like they were <laughs> glaring at like the light from my legs was just glaring and like hitting people blinding them as I walked across the street <laughs> there's like car accidents yeah <laughs> that was exactly I caused several car accidents with the sheer bright white of my legs <laughs> Yeah, that I think that's pretty much what's going on here with me too. So, but time, time will, time <laughs> and sun will help that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's what I'm hoping. And that concludes our segment. What's new with you? Julia, so um, will you tell us a little bit more about like how you got into your field of study and um, how you came to do a podcast on it and um, kind of relatedly how you got into science communication? Yeah, so I think similar to agriculture, science communication was also a little bit of an accident. So I did my master's degree in agronomy and plant genetics also at the University of Minnesota. And, well, I guess stepping back even before then, when I was an undergraduate doing my ecological agriculture degree, I was really enjoying my classes, but they lacked the experiential component that, you know, agriculture is very hands-on. It's a physical activity for the most part. And I felt like I really needed that part, especially after working on a farm and kind of 
having that hands-on experience already, I wanted to see what it looked like from an academic perspective. And thankfully, I met a graduate student on the first day of my plant pathology class in our lab. Just she happened to sit down next to me and we got to chatting and she offered me a job like at the end of that class session, which was kind of, yeah, serendipitous. And I thought it was because I was really organized or something to show that it'd be a great research assistant, you know, kind of person working on her projects. But years later, I find out it's because, sorry, I thought this was very funny. I guess I told her that my favorite fabric was wool. And that is why she offered me the job. It's Uh, a great fabric. It is. Yeah. It's an amazing fabric. Mother resistant. And I guess it was just wasn't getting the recognition it deserved in. I think that was like 2012. So (laughs) I, uh. I got a job because I love wool so much. And I, in that job, I got to work with her. I got to work with a professor on hops projects, looking at insect pests on hops. And that was really cool and interesting. And I, I liked the research aspect and I continued with that group and got a summer job where I worked with a lot more crops and learned about, you know, insects and how their pests are beneficial and different fertilization and just really a broad variety of agricultural topics that I found really interesting. And that really spurred me to pursue a graduate degree. So I came to the University of Minnesota to do my master's and that I'm not sure if in your fields, if either of you did a master's before your PhD or how it quite works. But at least in mine, your master's is pretty prescribed in like research. It's such a short period of time. You come in, you do a project, you leave, um, and you don't really get any latitude or flexibility until your PhD. And um, how that ties into science communication is as I was reflecting and my advisor was like, you, I really want you to come up with a project that you're really interested in and really excited about before you start the PhD. Um, in addition to these projects that are agricultural based and already funded. And so I had to do some real soul searching and it was a couple months that were <laughs> extremely stressful thinking about what is my favorite part about this? What will kind of set me up for things that I want to learn more about in the future? And I realized that I had always loved podcasts and <laughs> I had been listening to podcasts. I was thinking about it today, uh, earlier today. And I think the first one I started listening to was in 2006. It was a Harry Potter recap podcast. Whoa, that's so early for podcast listening, though. Yeah. You were like way ahead. And so I've been listening since then. And I was like, you know what? We don't always do a great job at communicating our science. This is kind of, you know, the SparkNotes version. We're not great at communicating our science to people who aren't scientists or even people who are scientists in other disciplines or areas of study. And I think a podcast could be a viable way to do that. And my committee was like, cool, just find people (laughs) who know what they're doing to help you. And who'd you find? (laughs) Well, that was also, I feel like a lot of things I do happen by accident and 
that's good, but it's usually after a lot of um, stress on my part, <laughs> and then they just yes. kind of fall into place. But I found a flyer actually when I was taking a break during a, I had a three hour class and we had a break in the middle of it. And I was just standing in the hallway and I saw this flyer that was called, it was for a class that was called podcasting for scientific literacy. And I was like, Hey, wow, everything I need. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, this seems like my guy. So I have two podcast advisors uh, who are in the agricultural communication department at the University of Minnesota. So that has been very helpful to me. But yeah, and so the Hooked on Science was born. And here I am now. If it's not clear from our podcast, we don't have podcast advisors. No, we are each other's podcast advisor. With mixed results. (laughs) So like with the initial like learning how to communicate science, like what is something that like you first, like when you were first getting started and you're like, I need to communicate this, like what were some initial challenges and ways that you worked through them? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, my initial communication, science communication experience was actually in the position I had before I started graduate school. So I worked for Extension, which is a service that every state university has. There's one in every state and they they are a resource for communities to uh, learn more about nutrition and health or how to garden or how to farm and 4-H and forestry and all sorts of things. Um, so I worked for an extension professor and I had a lot of direct interfacing with farmers and that really helped me on what I was doing um, because they keep you humble farmers. They want to know the facts. They want to know what's going to work, what's not going to work. You don't get to use that kind of flowery academic language of like, well, these things sort of worked or, you know, whatever. (laughs) You have to be like, this is the most economically, this is the way you're going to save money and get the most like yield out of your crop or whatever. And so that was like my initial science communication training. And so as I came into the podcast, I was like, I really want to keep that part of it, the really grounded part that you get from working with a group like farmers who don't have time to mess around. They want to know what's going on. Uh, And so I think some of the initial challenges really were around some of those same ideas of like, okay, how do I take this academic information that isn't always clear, is full of jargon, can be difficult to discern, you know, what's important, what's not important, How do I take that and turn it into a podcast so that people can learn? They get all of the, you know, necessary background information that they need. How do they get all the necessary like scientific information? And how do I like build that and keep that in every episode that I do? And so I think just building something from the ground up that translates to a general audience as opposed to an academic audience was the biggest challenge that I've had especially since everyone that I interview is coming from an academic background. We spend most of our time talking to other scientists. Yeah. I mean, I don't want this to be a love letter to land grant institutions, but I do like my first experience with like communicating science was to a group of people. Um, 
who weren't in psychology, but I was reflecting my like summer um, extension experience through like Cornell's land grant um, institution and like co-op uh, program. So it was this like really good opportunity to be opportunity while wow, can't talk um, to like say, okay, well I have this knowledge base, but they're not interested <laughs> in me being like, this is the date, like this is the, like they aren't interested in all like not everyone of course some people are I don't mean to speak like too generally but um communities want information that can be helpful to them and to help them like do better whether it's in agriculture or, like um ours is like human ecology based so there's some agricultural components but um to youth development and you're not going to help anyone by communicating things like scientifically accurate but uh like just inscrutable to anyone who's not in your field yeah for sure yeah and like i i've had to give some talks to families and how their their children sleep and like accurate sleep presentations and how you can help your kids sleep and um oftentimes folks coming to those types of talks have very specific questions and you want to be able to answer them. And sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, but uh, it's one of those things that I think our field of psychology does, does not do the best of the jobs for. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> I know hot take, but no, like I think people have a very Freudian understanding of psychology in our culture and we haven't done a good job dispelling those myths. No because that was what the school of thought was for a very long time and like it's the idea of like the id and the ego is something that i think a lot of people try to hold on to um but yeah thinking about your your field julia and how do you like this podcast is great in being able to disseminate these pieces of knowledge in very in other fields which i think is really cool it's not just within your own field other than the podcast when you do your own research how are some ways that you've been able to disseminate that back yeah so i am grateful to work for an extension professor now as my advisor so i still get to it's not as frequent as when I was an employee, but I still get to participate in, we call them field days. We'd literally go out into the field, take the farmers around to different, you know, test plots and experiments and explain what's going on and what the treatments are. And then, you know, what are the takeaways? And I think uh, that has also helped in some maybe succinctness and being like, okay, what's important. So I still have to use those skills and be talking to people who really just want to know what's up um, because it directly impacts their livelihoods or it could if they, you know, decide to take on the different cropping rotation or the, you know, techniques we're showing them. And other than that, you know, I go to scientific conferences, not, not in 2020, but <laughs> in the past. And that's a lot of the kind of prescribed academic presentations of either an oral presentation, poster presentation, which I think there's room for improvement as far as science communication in those go, but that's just our, uh, the track that we have 
laid out for us in academia right now. So I feel like I've gotten the kind of the broad variety of communication between talking to other scientists and also talking to people who who my work can actually impact and hopefully help their lives become either more economically or in the case of farmers, environmentally sustainable. And that's something I've enjoyed. Yeah, I'm a little curious about like, there's, I think sometimes I think of, and I don't know if anyone else feels this, as like science communication as like a little one way, like, like the way I initially, it's like, oh, I need to communicate this information appropriately to the groups that I'm talking to, but not about the other way of like, I need to bring the concerns of this community. And I think people can have a lot of um, misconceptions about who farmers are, like what they, what they look like and like what their, what their priorities are and goals are. So like, do you mind talking a little bit about that and what that experience is going to be like the two way kind of conversation that you're having? Yeah. I mean, especially in agriculture, that is a huge thing. If you are not asking your farmers, your stakeholders, what kind of research they actually want done and what would be beneficial to them on their farms and, you know, actionable for them within their economic means. Because I think as many people know, farming is not the most lucrative field. And so what can we help them with that they can actually implement is a huge conversation that not everyone does well, but I think in extension the professors and the educators that are in that realm tend to do a really good job at going back to the farmers and saying, hey, what do you what do you need? And there's usually kind of like a dual layer of the really practical application stuff and then some of the higher, you know, thinking, theoretical, academic stuff, uh, which which is good. But I think in all science communication, not just in agriculture, we often come to this one-way street of information, <laughs> and especially in podcasting, I think this is a hard thing to find balance in is how do you solicit feedback? How do you hear from people? If you're doing a good job communicating your information, are they understanding it? Do they need more of X, Y, or Z? Um, yeah, I... I feel like when I was reading papers to kind of learn more about science communication, that was the biggest thing that they would talk about was you have to talk to the people who you're trying to communicate to, to see if what you're doing is effective. And that I think in general is something that people that try to communicate science don't do that well. And I am certainly no exception to that. I don't know how how well I'm doing. I've tried to solicit feedback, but that's not always easy. People can hear about it, but they don't necessarily take the action step to actually give you that feedback you're looking for, which maybe you have also had that issue or maybe not. Yeah, no, I, I think that's definitely something um, I ask like informally people who I know who listen to the podcast, but that's a very like it's not, it's a bias sample. Um, we obviously, I obviously, we have a critic of the pod, um, a friend of mine who's not in psych, um, who likes to tell me when I've, uh, when I'm boring or laugh at my own jokes. So that's the main feedback, but. Um, we have bits I, that go on for too long. Yeah, Usually. I don't see the problem. There's um, no problem there. <laughs> no problem. Um, but I do like, 
you know, like field to field, like I think something that's been also a problem in psychology is sometimes it can be a little, not a little, uh, the history of psychology is kind of paternalistic in the way it's, um, I keep on trying to minimize the history of psychology is paternalistic in that it has this history of telling people, this is what's wrong with you. And if you deny it, then that's a defense mechanism because you're not able to. So it's something like that as we move into being better at communicating science and we like confront like, you know, like science misinformation and the culture. And um, I want to make sure that what we're doing and like what I'm doing in my own like research is I'm asking the questions that people want answers to. And that like my research, if it's going to have an impact is, or I hope my, my research, I want it to have an impact. And so that's talking to people. Right. Um, so not to like belabor the point that you're making, but like it, it's about impact. Right. And um, and being of use to the people that you're studying or who's who you're helping um, your work is like impacts. Yeah. And I think like the way that we, try to do that is through our like usually within science it's like the journal articles it's all these other pieces that are more academic you're speaking to other fellow academics who are in your field and then if someone wants to read one of our articles they're faced with a paywall and it's like really hard to get which is a whole other side issue that um we don't have to go into right now but how how might we as a like i think just science more generally what are ways do do either of you think that we could be better at disseminating first dissemination and then getting that feedback i think one like step one is visibility like getting whatever materials that we make obviously as you were just saying dustin journal articles are paywalled they're not yeah. visible you can't you literally cannot get to them unless you pay for it or you're at a university or some other institution with those credentials. But getting things that are visible, even if they're online, that can be really hard, even though the internet is supposed to be this, you know, expanse, you can find anything. I mean, information, misinformation, yeah. <laughs> the whole the whole spectrum. But getting getting things visible, I think, is is really step one and we have not figured out how to do that to have you know reliable platforms where people can go and have good information because you know at this point even well not even the media is biased and that's not mm -hmm. not a secret and i think one of the most shocking things i've read about okay it's not that shocking but many newspapers and big you know news stations would have dedicated science journalists people that could were scientists, they understood the science, they could take that information and condense it in a way that people could understand if they were just, you know, reading the newspaper over their morning coffee. And we don't have those avenues anymore. I don't remember the exact statistics, but the rate that that's decreasing is really startling. And so I think step one is like, finding places where people can find the information that we're trying to get to them before we even start to generate the information and the content that we're trying to get them to read. But that's just my perspective on it. No, I, I totally agree. I think it's, and again, it, it, if you don't have science journalists and, you know, 
they're increasingly like it's harder to get a job in journalism so right like that's a problem that then becomes a problem for scientists right because then you have to take on another task in being able to communicate things and make sure that it's translated properly and it's a real problem without science journalists as an intermediary um the thing like I think I've been like more aware of in recent years and trying to do is talking like within my social networks about the things that I research and in the hopes that that'll spread network to network um but hopefully not in a bad game of telephone (laughs) and so like kind of two examples of this is um I guess one is semi-formal but um when I was coaching uh teenagers and um or like volunteer coaching, uh, cross country and track and field while I was in Urbana. Um, the kids were surprising, like to me, surprisingly interested in my research. And so, you know, I was explaining to them like, uh, the gender differences, uh, that emerge in depression around puberty. And I was like, well, so like typically like for boys and girls, and obviously it's measured in boys and girls because it's historic research, not there's less room for like trans and non-binary in that past research. Um, But explaining to them that girls are twice as likely to experience like depression post-puberty and like talking to them about why that is. And it was this casual conversation because they wanted to know what I, like what I was interested in, what I do. And I was like, I don't do that research right now, but this is what I'm hoping to do, like study more. And I'm in a lab to help get these skills. And then a few weeks later, I was like warming up with them and I overheard one of them ask like another one, like, what's like Coach Kate even doing in Illinois? And like, they thought I was like an undergrad or something. And the other, uh, the other like kid was like, Coach Kate does this. She studies why girls are more depressed than boys. Like, but actually like did a really decent job, got everything like in essence, like correct about what I had told him and I was just I was so impressed and I was like really happy about that um and I talked to like uh, I think also it's like addressing seeing where the gaps in knowledge are like I talked to a lot of my male friends about my menstrual cycle research um and I think and female friends as well but I think there's like real value and um talking to men about menstruation um and the menstrual cycle And then, so those are things I think I'm pretty good at. Um, I am still not great at communicating with undergrads about my research, which I think is kind of funny, but I think I don't know quite what level to meet them at yet because there's such a like different knowledge base. And so for example, one of our undergrads was doing a journal article and she was like, (laughs) I had mentioned something over email saying like, there's not a lot of research on this one area. And so to the whole lab, she goes, there's no research on like anxiety and depression and puberty. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> that's like not true. <laughs> and I was like, how did you get that from what I said? Um, but it's like, it's not being like, how do they not get it? Which was my initial response. And like in the weeks following, I'm like, oh, like I need to do a better job communicating that information. Cause there was some like mismatch and how I spoke about it where it didn't quite go through and so I need to like work on that and it's something that I think a lot about because I want to be a good mentor for my undergraduates and help them with that so that was a really long answer but that's my that's my science communication kind of recommendation and experience and I think like given these more formal 
journal articles and presentations and things like that. It's a very specific format that you have to, to situate your research in. And I think there's this historic push of how to use language and how to talk about things, but that doesn't mean that that is how it needs to be. And so I think there does need to be some top-down like structural changes, which would be really great. So um, for all of those higher-ups listening to this podcast, change those right now. Stop this and go do that. Um, all those people listening to our podcast, the yeah. president of the university is like... <laughs> Yeah, there's the, the president of Elsevier, and um, that's the only one I can pick up. <laughs> we don't want your funding. Funds. Yeah. No, we don't. We want you to put your funding to make things free and accessible. Um, and then us. And then us, yeah, with all the leftover stuff. <laughs> but then it's also, like, I think that there is, I, the younger generation is more pushing for this open transparency bit and wanting to share research more widely. And I, I think one way that I've seen that is like in blog posts and or like discussion boards where you can have some interactions. And I think Twitter also is a really great resource for that. Um, but it is, it's one of those weird things that like we get money from the government, <laughs> from taxpayer dollars, and then we publish it. And then that can't be seen it's like a weird thing and then we don't get like uh, it, it's all the public broken. tax dollars going to waste right yeah. yeah like and i would never want less tax dollars going towards research but if that's yeah. the case like they're just like there are like there are things you have to meet like there are milestones you have to meet if you get a government funded project there should be like communication standards you have to meet for public dissemination and not just journals yeah, and I think one of the problems with that, I mean, I think anecdotally, it's something I think a lot of people know about, but it's in, you know, some of the literature too, that in academia, it's not rewarding, or it, the university doesn't reward professors who go out of their way to communicate to the public. And I mean, I am in sort of a unique position with like my advisor, who part of his job is communicating with the public in extension. But for the most part, in most university positions, that's not the case. And so all that research generated, yeah, just goes into that kind of black hole of paywall and done. Yeah, that's it. The, no, the public does not see that, even though they are paying for it. I mean, I would say the majority of the time. Hey, they can it. read. <laughs> they can read one tiny abstract. Yes. And then pay forty dollars for one journal article, or oh something like that. Yeah. And I think one thing that we've tried to do, at least in my program, is so we're trying to get new crops that haven't previously been grown to get them on the landscape. And so part of that is just familiarizing people with their names and getting them to even know that they're, they will be an option. They're not quite an option yet. They're still in development. So I work on, they're called Pennycress and Camelina. They're both winter annual crops. And so we have really had to think about from the ground floor of developing these crops, how do we get this information, not just out to farmers, but out to, you know, recommendations for the state and things like that, you know, other, other stakeholders across the state to 
have them even learn about it and want to put it on farms and dedicate acreage on uh, within Minnesota and across the Midwest to it. And so we do a lot. That's a long way to say we do a lot of like two page kind of like blog posts as you were talking about before, Dustin. And I think for me, one of the most difficult things to do with that is in academia, it's been so drilled into my brain to write in the passive voice that writing in the active voice of like, you can do this is so hard. And, you know, people are like, you sound like a robot when you write. And I'm like, well, this has been drilled into my brain for 15 years. I don't know how long. I have to put back in contractions because I'm so used to breaking up. Like, and I'm like, you cannot do that. And I'm like, it makes me sound like not a person in my emails. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, I got to switch that back. Uh, Or even saying like I in writing, that's, oh my gosh. Or like, we did this thing. It's like, I can't say that. It's like, this thing was done. Yeah. (laughs) And like like for certain grants, sometimes like if it's just you or there's like things where you're supposed to use I and it's so uh to me like or like it's happened to me I think like just once where it was like I hypothesize like if you're like because it never happens but if you're first author like if you're the only author on a paper like you can say I but it must like it's just like such a mental like twist not that I'm the first and only author on any papers like lol to that but, uh, <laughs> I I also uh oh I think that the other thing I think is like, there's no hype out there for like new crops. Like there was for GameStop, GameStop <laughs> stock. Like we need like something we need, like, oh man, you got to buy these seeds before they're gone. Like need to have like a marketing to the moon. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Madness. I don't know. <laughs> there you go. I like it. You got to put crops against each other and then you get to the final four. It's yeah. missing an adrenaline spike. Like that's, that's what I think the missing, I think I've solved it. There yeah, we go. Like which mental disorder? Well, it doesn't work that way. Uh, <laughs> I have to like gamify it or as my mom was saying the other day when I was like, I just don't want to do any work or I have this to-do list that I made of easy things because I didn't want to do work. And she was like, well, can you sex it up? And I was like, no. <laughs> what um, about, um, <laughs> what's the game on Nintendo? Like the, um, game where you can farm things and like pick your house and it's very peaceful animal crossing either of them yeah really. why don't you put like the new crops on animal crossing i think this is i'm sorry apparently i'm gonna have to leave my field and start yeah. learning about agronomy right i'm gonna write all these things down i'm gonna email nintendo after this and be like i have an a amazing crop. opportunity for you it's gonna sound like a multi-level marketing <laughs> <laughs> Dear Mr. and Mrs. Nintendo. <laughs> we need more multi-level marketing energy in our fields. That's true. Probably, yeah. honestly. But isn't that, that like kind of is grad school. It's like if you tell three other friends, they'll get into grad school and then you will all be depressed. This is true. It's a, I've had a lot of conversations with undergrads recently. Sorry, Dustin, about why they shouldn't go into clinical psychology. <laughs> Unless you really, really want to. And my eyes go crazy like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think like research, we tend to think of it as this sole thing where you're like, usually get the image of like a wet lab and you're in a, <laughs> I was going to say trench coat. You're in like a doctor's coat. <laughs> Don't go into a trench coat and like, like let me ask you about how sad smoky a pipe yeah um 
but it it generates this image where you think that you are going to be running all this data, you're going to be collecting everything, you're going to be doing analyses and all that. Um, when in reality, there's a big like marketing component. There's a big just like business and man managerial man managerial. There's a business component um, <laughs> that we often don't think about, and then we're having researchers do that who were trained in a very specific field, who were not trained to be marketers or to be business like people, um, and then. It, it just seems like we're putting a lot on a sole researcher or a sole research team when it should be more multidisciplinary, but it's not. And I don't know yeah, why. It is. That is hard to come by. I actually am really grateful because these crops we're bringing to market, there's like 13 across stages of development for this. And so we have this team that is actually multidisciplinary. We have food scientists, we have economists, we have agronomists, we have plant breeders, we have plant geneticists, we have people that know business and things like that. And that's, it seems crazy that across, you know, all disciplines and research, that's not more common to have experts who can get the information to the people that it needs to get to and uh, actually make moves on the research that we conduct and the findings that we find <laughs> <laughs> the findings we find. uh what is your favorite of the 13 crops and why and what's your least oh wait you probably shouldn't say your least favorite okay what's your favorite and like be really aggressive in marketing it okay so I only work I've only worked with two of them okay. and there's others that I think would be really cool but I just only know like the bare minimum about them because it's a lot of information to know but I have a special place in my heart for Pennycrest. It's Ooh. what I did all my master's research on. I have one project in my PhD on it. And it's just this really dynamic crop. It used to be a weed. We're turning it into a crop. So I see it all the time in the summer between the sidewalk cracks. That's It like thrives in environments that other plants don't thrive. It's really adaptable. It's hardy. It's a it's a winter annual. So not to get too much into plant speak, but that <laughs> means that we plant it in September and it like grows a little bit just like leafy. We call it a rosette, just like a, a bunch of leaves and a little mm -hmm. circular pattern. And uh, it just chills over the winter. It doesn't die. It can uh, grow, can start growing at negative two and a half degrees Celsius. So that's what? A lot, like 30 degrees wow. Fahrenheit. And it just like, that's a thing. That's actually really, that's cool. That's yeah. a winner. That's a, yeah. that's a winning crop. Yeah. Nintendo, if you're listening. Yes. Game uh, it can be like two inches tall and produce seeds or, you know, when we're growing it in field conditions, it's like waist height. So Ooh. it, uh, it does a lot of stuff. That's you can't cool. eat it yet, but you can turn it into industrial oil. Ah, all, all my industrial oil needs solved. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I know how many airplanes you fly across the country. So, <laughs> Well, critic of the pod loves airplanes. And so I'll, I'll, like, <laughs> I'll uh, share this information with him. Um, can be turned into jet fuel. Yes. It's a okay. No, oil. no. Critic of the pod would like this information. <laughs> Zach Israel, this part is for you. 
are are you trying to get it to the point where it can be eaten? Yeah, fuel, fuel or people. Yeah. Yeah. So it. Okay, so it's in the brassica family, so it's similar to like canola, and so canola obviously we make oil out of it. It's an edible. What? So they're all oil seed crops. So you harvest the seed and then you press it for oil. So canola oil is edible, but it came from that plant originally came from rapeseed. And so they're the only difference between those two plants, you know, generally speaking is that one has an inedible oil can be used for industrial purposes. One can be used for edible purposes. And so pennycress is in that rapeseed category right now. It has almost all the same characteristics. They're in the same family. Um, so it's kind of using that same breeding pipeline to get to edible. They, the breeders, uh, and the geneticists have identified some lines that are edible. Apparently it's a very nutty flavor. They're just calling it nutty right now. (laughs) How long before it's made into a milk? (laughs) Oh man, that's a good question. I don't know. It is an oil. So I I don't know if it'll ever become milk status, but hopefully it will become like cooking oil status. It doesn't sound as good as oat milk. No, I don't. I don't know if it's going to morph into that, but it's a, yeah, it's a work in progress, but it's a fun thing to be a part of with a lot of dynamic moving parts. Ooh, Dustin, what's your favorite sleep stage? Three, (laughs) two, one. (laughs) Out of time. Okay. Next time you're not as good at science. What's your your favorite? What's your favorite menstrual cycle? Menstrual, the, oh, nope. Time's up. <laughs> Damn it. Next time on the podcast, yeah. we'll talk. Yeah. We'll talk about why the follicular phase is better. Feels like March Madness now. You guys are getting buzzed. Oh, out. yeah. I know. We'll add, add the buzzer in post, Dustin. Sure will. It'll just be me going. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, before we kind of wrap up with our future directions, is there anything like you'd like to share with our listeners about like science communication and like what have you, I guess, like what is your takeaway, take Ben? Like you've interviewed so many grad students and you've gotten a real sense for like different fields. Like what's your takeaway? Like what's something you've learned? I mean, it's just so amazing how much research people how much research is being done by people who know a lot about, you know, something very specific. And so it's been so fun to learn about that and see what people are really interested in and invested in, and then kind of taking what they're doing and trying to apply it to a broader audience. So one thing that I always try to do in my podcast, it's not always successful, but trying to give people not action items per se, but saying like, okay, this is kind of how this can relate to you. Like when you and I chatted, Dustin, we talked about, we've all been teenagers. This is something that you can probably relate to, even if that's not the phase of your life that you're in anymore. And so just making it relatable, making the information accessible and relatable and interesting to people. And so I don't know if that's really a takeaway, but I think that everyone's field of research can probably probably be applied to, you know, quote unquote, real life, uh, whether or not that applies to every single person, but who's hearing it. But I think that we can find commonalities between a lot of different things and 
it's fun to learn about that and be kind of the, I don't know, conduit. <laughs> They're not speaking through me, but <laughs> speaking near me. <laughs> through your pod podcast yeah. is conduit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Julia. So um, as we reach our final segment, we're uh, we're going to talk about future directions. My future direction is one of my favorite comic books, Invincible, uh, was turned into a an animated series on Amazon right now. So the first three episodes are out. And I think it comes out every Friday. So it is developed by Robert Kirkman, who you might know from The Walking Dead. Um, he did that comic book, has done a lot of others. And Invincible is about like a an adolescent boy who finds out that he has superpowers, uh, like that his father has superpowers. And then it's all about like him being both a teenager and being a superhero and like coming into that it's really great and uh, i would definitely suggest checking it out either reading it reading the comic book invincible or watching the the tv show on amazon that sounds great um my future direction is i just finished um i'm a big margaret atwood fan and so i've been like slowly working my way through all of her novels and i just read i think it was her first published novel um the edible woman and it's just it's really good um it's margaret atwood is a little bit of a slippery character and how she will she she like doesn't identify as a feminist which i find interesting um but this book is uh the like time that it was written it was like really prescient for like just a lot of like issues that were currently happening but not being discussed it's uh she herself describes it as a proto-feminist book and um I'm making it sound really boring and academic-y so bad bad literature communication Kathleen um but it is super good and like really interesting and so that's my like number one and then I think I'm gonna start reading All About Love by Bell Hooks so I'm excited to dive into that so Check them out. Nice. I'm also looking forward to starting a book that I got. It must have been in January. I just haven't gotten around to reading yet. I have been using, utilizing my local library. So I figured I'd put the books that I bought aside while I had other ones. But so this one, I'm going to be starting The Great Alone, which I know was pretty popular last year the year before I'm not sure I have not heard of this I haven't it's either by I think Kristen Hannah it's been rated really well but it's <laughs> the title the great alone was like is this grad school <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's just in Alaska <laughs> oh it um, also sounds pandemic-y so <laughs> yes yeah. is it grad school in a pandemic maybe <laughs> but so I'm looking forward to starting that I don't really know what it's about yet so it'll be I think a little bit of a different flavor than what I've been reading, which is mostly light, fluffy kind of vacation books. I think this one is also, you know, a for fun book, but I, I'm looking forward to that. And I have two really great podcast episodes that I'm doing interviews for on Monday and Tuesday, one on lucid dreaming and one on tiny houses 
So why don't we study anything cool? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Sorry. That sounds really cool. So if people want to learn about that, they should check out Hooked on Science in the next couple weeks when those episodes come out. Yay. Anything else you want to plug? I sporadically post on Twitter, mostly thoughts from my brain, not fair. I'm not very good at science communication on Twitter, (laughs) but you can follow me on Twitter. I think my handle is jcubans. My podcast has Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And on Twitter, it's Hooked on Science. And then on Facebook and Instagram, it's Hooked on Science Pod. But other than that, I don't know that the podcast is the excitement in my life. It's my, my social my socialization in the grad school <laughs> that's how dustin and i get our main social interaction for the week no. <laughs> yep yeah i'm all okay. good don't need anything else <laughs> just sit in a dark room otherwise yeah yeah can i also make one more plug hell yeah so since this is a grad student audience i think mainly if any grad students are interested in coming on the podcast you should send me an email the email is hooked on science pod at gmail.com and we can chat. I am always open to anyone who is interested in recording an episode. Woo-hoo. We'll have all that information down in the description, both your, your website and all of the handles and email address. I think on your website too, there is a form that generates that communication too. There is. Perfect. There's lots of ways to get in touch. Yes. <laughs> And I will endorse being on the podcast. It was really great. And uh, it was fun being able to talk about my own research too. Like you usually talk about it with folks in your own field and get like really into nitty gritty stuff that maybe not, might not make, might, might not really mean a whole lot. Um, so it was good to just have like talking, having a conversation about some of those main points. So definitely if you're a grad student, go go sign up and talk to Julia. She's great. And I get to ask lots of random questions that come into my brain. So it's a win-win for me. (laughs) Thank you. And have a nice week, podcast listeners. We haven't figured out how to end anything yet. No. Thank you. The You Can Grad Door is on a vacation. Ha, ha, ha.